the people that you have around you, the people that you're working with are your strength. And, you know, those who try to go at it alone or, you know, take that spotlight that you're talking about, I just, uh, you know, it's, it's not authentic and, and people can feel that. If you have the right team, which I'm a big believer in, you know, having sort of this racehorse team where you're not pushing them, you're not prodding them. They're like, they're going on their own. All you're doing is making adjustments um, and, and making them the best they can be. It's interesting because when I did first start my non-music career as an executive, I thought that I had to do everything. And that actually was created the opposite effect. It created, you know, uh, a disengaged team because they felt I was micromanaging when really what I was trying to do, I thought was give them bandwidth because, you know, you know, the buck stops with me and, you know, I should take on all their burden. It was an early lesson that I still have to remind myself of, you know, that people want to feel engaged. They want to feel part of the solution and and, and you have to give them the, the time and, and, the, and the space to do that. Welcome to the Second in Command podcast produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. All right, so you're going to love this episode today. This is the only time that I've ever had a conductor of an orchestra now COO on the podcast. Super cool. You're actually going to get some really good insights as to how you can take the skills of being an orchestra conductor for seven or eight years and bring that into the business world, into the COO role, talking about leaders of leaders, heart-centered leadership. He's also a bit of a horse whisperer. He wrote a book called Cowboys and Conductors. And he's going to talk about what we can learn from horses in the business world as well. And then also the different stresses of being a CEO, which he has been before and being a COO now as well. So you'll love the episode. We'll see you on the inside. This is one you'll be sharing for sure. Hey, Paul, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, looking forward to um, to learning from you and to um, to hearing some of your story. Before we dive into kind of the whole Miller Kaplan story and what your role as a COO, and, and we talked prior to going live about some areas that I'm going to ask you about, you said something re- really fascinating. And I think in the 250-ish guests that we've had, this is absolutely a first. You're a former conductor and not like a train conductor, but like an orchestra music conductor. That's correct. Yeah. And that's funny you say train conductor because uh, actually a good friend of mine who was a orchestra conductor, his neighbor for 20 years thought he was a train conductor. Right. <laughs> uh, but yes, orchestra conductor. Uh, I also did some choral work as well. So that's how I started my career as a conductor. Got into music when I was a kid and, uh, you know, switched careers, but uh, but I still use my conducting lessons and, and training and, and experience uh, still today. Yeah, and I don't think that this is a career that anyone in the history of ever knows how you get started in, except for conductors and people in an orchestra. Like, I don't think anyone, you don't bump into people on the streets and go, oh, I know how you get that job. How do you get, how do you start at that? Do you just get frustrated being a musician and do it? Or do you, <laughs> you just need to control the chatter of the musicians or what, like, what is it? No, you know, it's, it's a, it is a really great question. You know, usually the path is you start in music, obviously, you know, you know, when you go into a music career, you can't start it like when you get to college, you can't think, oh, I might pick up the violin and be a musician. I mean, usually are training, you know, as early as three or five years old. I know I got a late start at 12 and 
you know, my life changed. I grew up in Baltimore. My life changed because a choir director started a boy choir and sort of pulled me off the streets and put me into this choir. So I thought, ah, I want to, I want to be that person. I want to be that mentor. But, you know, most people become a musician first, you know, whatever the instrument is. And, you know, I don't know what it is that calls certain people to, to want to be up in front, but it really is, it's really more of a coach, you know, it's, it's, it's a leader of leader of leaders, really. So, I mean, if you're, and that could be business, you know, like what, what, what causes people to be a COO or a CEO or a leader of anything? Um, I think it's the same thing. It's just within the music, music path, you know, conductors are just like CEOs are no necessarily not greater or more experienced or more talented. They just have different kinds of skills that allow, you know, you to work with a group um, and get a certain effect or a certain, you know, uh, goal accomplished. They are very similar to COOs for, for another reason as well. I mean, yes, they're the, they're the leader of leaders and you're trying to orchestrate and organize all of these people doing very different tasks and projects to get aligned and, and work together and collaborate and have consensus and, and produce great work. But you've also kind of got your back to the audience and the back. So it's not about you. The spotlight isn't about you. It's about making them look good. Do you think that's something that you bring in as the COO as well, of uh, Miller Kaplan, that you're trying to make the team look good? Absolutely. You know, I think um, that is the strength. The, the people that you have around you, the people that you're working with are your strength. And, you know, those who try to go at it alone or you know, take that spotlight that you're talking about. I, I just, uh, you know, it's, it's not authentic and, and people can feel that, you know, I mean, again, if you have the right team, which I'm a big believer in, you know, having sort of this racehorse team where you're not pushing them, you're not prodding them. They're like, they're going on their own. All you're doing is making adjustments um, and, and making them the best they can be. Uh, you know, and that's a whole other conversation, right? How do you develop a racehorse team? But you know, it's it's interesting because when I did first start my non-music career as an executive, um, I thought that I had to do everything. You know, I thought that I had to sort of take everyone's burden and do their job for them and help them. And and that actually was, it created the opposite effect. It created, you know, uh, a disengaged team because they felt I was micromanaging when really what I was trying to do, I thought, was give them bandwidth because, you know, you know, the buck stops with me and, you know, I should take on all their burden. And uh, and that's not, it was an early lesson that I still have to remind myself of, you know, that people want to feel engaged. They want to feel part of the solution. And and, and you have to give them the, the time and, and, the, and the space to do that. Well, and the, the one-man band never sounds as good as the orchestra does. <laughs> I just... Back to the Mary Poppins scene of of whatever his name is, just it's ridiculous. Like, come on, gotta stop this. And a you know, and a conductor doesn't make any sound. He's the only person up there not making any noise. <laughs> you know, so so you really are in a completely supportive role of, and and it's a humbling role because again, you know, if you have a racehorse team or this leader group, I mean, they've been doing their whatever it is, their expertise for years and years and years, you know, who are you to come up and tell them how to do it better or different? But, um, you know, therein lies the the training. It's funny. I was asked the other day on, on social media, somebody said, you know, what's the, the best musical experience of your life? And I had two flashbacks. Now a third, the third was Elton John front row center floors. I mean, how could that not wow. be? <laughs> Amazing, right? And that was like six years ago. Unbelievable. But, but the two that hit me very, very quickly had an orchestra involved. And I'm not necessarily normally an orchestra kind of person. But one was about four years ago with my two boys who were 17 and 15. And we saw The Who 
playing with the symphony orchestra on stage and they played some of the songs from Tommy. And I was just like, are you fucking kidding? It was just like, <laughs> have you seen that at all? Have you seen any of the clips? I, I, I know of the show. Yeah. Yeah. I'll send you a couple of clips later just from my phone. Oh my gosh. It was like unbelievable. Like the rock opera. It was just so powerful. That was one. And then the second one, completely different at the top of Whistler mountain, 1994 in the summer. And we went up and saw the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra with Sarah McLaughlin playing at the time and just sitting on the grass in a bowl. And we got these king uh, sheets from the hotel that we sat on and we brought some food up. We smoked the joint and we just sat and listened to the orchestra play with Sarah McLaughlin singing. And I'm like, this, this is music like this is incredible. So. Well, it's just interesting you say that because, you know, it, I really do believe orchestra music nowadays, you know, in today's digital world and virtual world is is the new hip thing in this digital world, because, you know, it's 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 acoustic, it's natural, it's authentic. And to hear that live in particular uh, is awesome. And we don't have that experience anywhere else. You know, everything is so synthesized and transmitted through digital this and that and I think people are getting sick of it, you know. I think people are also getting sick of, you know, social media and phones. And, you know, I'm seeing a wave here, here. And what I'm hearing around the businesses is, you know, people want to come back and be in person because you can't replace that. Yeah. Well, and and the music that the orchestra plays doesn't have to be, you know, from the 1600s either. It can be right. <laughs> exactly. that's interesting and that's fun. And it's that's, you know, I, I saw another one with my kids when they were quite young and we saw... Uh, the orchestra and every single song they played were the Beatles. And it was amazing. It was like unbelievable. And my kids, I think it was actually pretty formative time for my kids to start to love music. Um, it was interesting. All right. So last part about being a conductor in business is Ben Zander. Do you? Have you seen <laughs> yes. Him, right? I know Ben. Yeah. 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 His, his Ted talk had a very, very profound impact on um, my, the CEO of 1-800-GOT-JUNK, where I was the COO at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Brian to this day talks about Ben as having this extraordinarily profound impact on him in business as well. What did, you said you know him. Is there anything you've pulled from him into the business world as well, do you think? Yeah, I mean, he's right on. And and kind of what I talk about in, in the book that uh, my colleague and I wrote are there are similarities there. It, it, it is about, again, translating being a leader of leaders, being uh, you know, when you're when you're a conductor, you are interpreting data. You're understanding, sort of looking beyond the obvious. You know, when it's it's a uh, you know you've got dots on a page and you've got you know instructions from the composer who might be 200 years you know dead at this point. But you know you've got to figure out uh, what does it all mean? What does he or she wanted to say? You know, how do you make it yours? Um, how do you convince 80 plus people who are experts in their field to go along with it? Um, how do you uh, convince others of your interpretation and, and do it in such a compelling way that even the audience buys into it. So, I mean, there's a lot of psychology that goes into, you know, being a conductor and being a musician. Uh, and he definitely, you know, hits on those things. And I, and I, that's how, how, you know, he and I got along right away because of that. Cause we kind of spoke the same language of business and, and, and music. You know, I think the thing that I've had the pleasure of doing is actually being in business and, you know, having, being on both sides of the footlights, so to speak. So, I mean, I've been on stage as a conductor, but I've also been in the, both CEO and COO role and understand how that plays out when you have payroll and you've got, you know, widgets to sell or, you know, uh, partners to convince or shareholders. So uh, I, I, I feel again, that I, that I've seen both and can connect the 
connect the two worlds together. Yeah, I love that. Um, I want to talk about your book. You mentioned your book. I think you, you say it was called Cowboys and Conductors. Right. Cowboys and Conductors. It's conversations on horsemen humanship. So uh, I, I met a, a client, recent client of mine who is a, who is a horse whispering con, uh, cowboy. And uh, when I first went to his ranch, I was helping him set up his ranch. And uh, when I first went there, he was working with horses and I was just watching him for the, you know, for a few minutes. And I'm, then we just started talking and I was asking him how he works with horses because he, 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 he works with trains, you know, horses who have just, who are new horses, but also rehabilitates horses for owners and, and, and how he works with them. We found out is how I work with people and how I lead people. And, you know, a horse can't just come up and say, Hey, you know, I'm hungry or I'm tired or I need this or I need that. And you've got to feel it. You've got to understand it. And horses are extremely intelligent beings as well. And they could, they can feel your heartbeat from four feet away and they can, they can feel your anxiety or feel your, you know, presence or, you know, and so I think a lot of that is true for people. We just, we, we ignore that piece of it. And I know, you know, I know a lot of, a lot of CEOs and business leaders don't want to hear this, but you know, the people part of it, it is, is absolutely what drives bottom line and, you know, not the kumbaya stuff, but really, really instinctually working with people like one would work with a horse. It's the whole thing. I, I, I've said for years now that none of this actually matters. We're all going to die. That, you know, every single one of our employees is showing up with something that bothers them and is struggling them and they're worried about and they're, and if you can connect with them as a human, they'll go through brick walls for you to build the company. But if all you Absolutely. do on a company, you're, you're dead in the water because there's, there's more important things for them, you know, in any day to day as there are for you and I as well. And, and it has to be authentic, right? It can't be something that you learned at a session or a book that you read, even though I just said, you know, should read our book. But, you know, it's, it's, it's about really internalizing that and making it real because people can, again, just like horses, they could smell your authenticity. And if you're just kind of being that, you know, friendly, engaging boss, it's, it, it really doesn't, it doesn't land well. Well, it's, it's interesting. I, uh, um, I spent a few days with a, a CEO of a company. I'm grasping at what his name is. I can't remember his name. He's a YPO member and he's blind. And, um, has been blind since around, I think, 10 or 12 years old. And we had dinner together one night and we were sitting at a dinner and he just back to the rest of the restaurant because he can't see anything that's going on in the restaurant anyway. So he kind of took the worst seat in the place. And um, I remember a, uh, the waitress walked up to him and he opened up the menu and he said, I'd like this wine and this wine, please. And he pointed and mentioned the names. And we're like, I thought you were blind. He goes, yeah, but I've learned to just read the feelings of the words on the page. And we're like, what? And he's talking about how I just I just know I can feel the vibe of the restaurant. I know it's there. And as like the six of us are kind of buying in, he goes, I'm fucking with you. I called earlier today to see if they had those two wines. I'm like, dude, that's so <laughs> not fair. But, he, but what he said was, and we talked about it later, that his his other four senses are very, very sharp now. Absolutely. Because he doesn't have the sense of sight to rely on. So his sound and his touch and his, his smell is much more acute than ours are. And Absolutely. it was an interesting thing to, to think about how do we develop those as leaders. That's exactly what we talk about in the book. And that's how one works with horses. And that's how you know, a conductor works with musicians. I mean, you are, you are working in real time. You are watching body language. And you know, in the conductor case, you're watching 80 people at one time. So you, you have to have a peripheral vision that's sharp. You have to have an instinct that knows when people need you and when they don't need you. You you know, lighting matters, the, the temperature matters, 
you know, what you're wearing matters, uh, what the rest of the audience, how they're feeling and breathing matters. I mean, all of it. So it's, so it is really about, um, it is really about developing again, that instinctual sense of listening and feeling and seeing and, and picking up on all those clues and putting them in, into the sausage maker in real time and figuring out what do you need to do next? And so, yeah, it's, I think, I think we all have that muscle. Um, we just, and that's why I go back to like, I think you need to authentically develop that. And, and there are tools and books and, you know, sessions and so forth. There are personality tests, you know, but the personality tests and the, you know, I'm a green or a red, or I'm an introvert or extrovert or whatever. I mean, those are helpful, but one really has to dive deep into who you are as a person and what drives you since your childhood in your personal and professional relationships, that really deep core, uh, and then figure out what drives others and try to connect those things or try to understand how you can work those things. And that, that takes time, but it's, I think it's a natural way that we can all work together if we really put the time into it, but it's like exercising, you know, you can't just do it overnight. You can't run a marathon in, in one day. So yeah, sometimes we get, sometimes we don't have the discipline to work through some of that. I have a friend who actually did. He his, was out for dinner one night with friends. And they said they were running a marathon the next day. He goes, I'll join you. And he ran a sub four. And he, but he was always an athlete. He was always a runner, you know, but he, yeah, he, I'm like, that's ridiculous. Like who the, does that? Um, it's kind of that whole, there's, there's an exception to every rule, right? Hey, it's Cameron. Did you hear? That's right. I wrote another book. But this book isn't just another book for me. It's actually for you, the visionary CEO that is looking to grow and scale their business. This book is called The Second in Command, Unleash the Power of Your COO. As a founder and CEO, you're used to making all the decisions, but the business you have isn't the one you envision. Heck, we've all been there. And the thing is, you know what you need. You need a COO, someone who can help you build the company you don't know how to build on your own. The Second in Command is your go-to guidebook when you're ready to scale up. I go through all the details in every aspect of the process, from knowing when you need to hire a COO, through identifying and hiring the right candidate, and successfully onboarding and working with them, and so much more. Go to CameronHerald.com forward slash new book to get your copy today. The Second in Command reveals the benefits COOs bring to companies and explores the many ways a COO mastermind or a COO forum can help grow the COO skills. You'll meet the types of COOs and understand the role each type plays, discover how to bring on a COO into your company with the least disruption, and avoid common problems before they arrive. Once again, it's CameronHerald.com forward slash new book to grab your copy today. There's no need to go it alone. We're in this together. Now back to the show. So Miller Kaplan is a prior client of yours. You had hired them before and then um, got brought in as the COO. Did they find you? Did you find them? How did that work? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I I, um, I had a, a nonprofit client that, um, you know, they needed an, another accounting firm. And so I did hire Miller Kaplan about, you know, 12 years ago. And and the the partner on the on the uh, on the scene was someone who I got along with and we just kind of stayed in touch just from a professional standpoint, even though I'd moved on. And yeah, I was, you know, doing consulting as we were talking about earlier. And 
I love consulting, but in the consulting world that I was in, which is change and transformation and, and, and getting organizations to do the right thing, all the stuff we're talking about, you know, two things were happening. One, uh, it was taking so much energy out of me to just convince CEOs that this change that we're talking about is important and will actually help the bottom line. And two, you know, always having your eye on the next client um, can be distracting. So um, when I saw, you know, the, I saw it on LinkedIn and I just saw that Miller Kaplan had a, an opening for COO and thought I can take all of what I've been doing and put it into one organization. And then really what sealed the deal for me was having the interview with the managing partner here, you know, sort of CEO of the firm. And he and I are on the same page with what you and I are talking about. And I thought, and I said to him that day, I said, if I could spend all my time actually doing the work and not spending half of it trying to convince you that it's important <laughs> or how we go about it is important, that would be awesome. So I got the job and it's it's been that. I, I haven't had to convince you know the CEO that this kind of people work is important. So a couple parts to that. One is how did you and the CEO divide and conquer kind of roles and responsibilities? Who does what? Was there a prior COO or was this a new role for the organization? I think it's a new purpose, a new purposed role, one that does sort of get into all of the areas of the company and does work on strategy and does, you know, execute. You know, it's interesting because I think this is most likely every company, but the COO role or the CEO role is almost if we go back to the arts world, you know, sort of that artistic director, that visionary who has, you know, the bigger picture and here's what I want, where I want the place to be. and and then relies on the CEO of that artistic organization, whether it's a museum or an orchestra or whatever, to um, carry out the the business pieces of it and and make sure that it gets done. But 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 also that you work as as partners. You know, I mean, both can be strategic. Both can have have ideas of execution. And I think the secret sauce is understanding both both of you understanding what your roles are, but also. And being and being empathetic to to those roles, but also understanding at the end of the day, this is your role, this is my role, and here's and here's how we might even conquer things together. You know, so it's I think it's a very it, it's a to me it's a very you have to have lots of layers of trust and and relationship to make it work. I think it, and you you know as well, know better probably that you can't just approach it from a business stand. You really need to. You know, you need to have a good relationship with that person in order for it to work. Cause you know, in any day things are coming at you and it's almost like being at war, you know, you've got to have each other's back, even though you're not in the same room, you know, you got to know that, you know, so it's, it's complicated and fascinating. And well, yeah, I don't know if I've answered your question, but I'm really well, for sure, for sure. <laughs> you're touching on some good stuff. This, this is my newest book that comes out on Tuesday called the I second. I saw that. Yeah. Movie. And um, one of the things I talk about in that that book is building that communication and building that trust and building that relationship with the CEO in a very kind of yin and yang way. Absolutely. And sometimes we need to, as the COO, kind of be the person who tells the CEO that they don't have any clothes on, right? Like the emperor's new suit. Um, Absolutely. Tell them where they're screwing up. Tell them we disagree. How do you do that? Because uh, you seem like a very empathetic, um, people-centered. How do you do that in a, in a way that um, you know they hear you and and are receptive to that? A couple of things. You know, one, I think data is important. Using data, um, and also and also just not making it personal. You know, sometimes you know we read the tea leaves differently, and it's not and it's not good or bad. Um, you know, I think 
I think it's again, it's it's you know, it's it's a hard it's hard to answer because I look at things holistically. So, but I think you know when you have a relationship where you know that you're both in this you know in a business sense, you're both trying to do what's best for the firm. It's not a personal thing. It's not an ego thing. It's not you know. Then I think that you can you can call each other. I think as you said, yin and yang. You know, I mean, both both can call each other. Uh, you're trying to figure out life together and. You know, no one teaches you how to be a COO or a CEO. And I remember the first, <laughs> the first day on the job when I was a CEO, CEO, I sat down at my desk and I'm like, okay, now what? <laughs> you know, like I got the job, here I am. Uh, what am I supposed to do every day? And, uh, and it's, and, you know, 20, 30 years later, it's, <laughs> it's the same feeling. Like, what am I doing here? I, you know, am I, should I be here? Um, I think if you, if you, if you, are empathetic about that, you know, to your CEO, right? Then he or she is feeling the same thing you are. And so you're kind of in it together. True. Very true. Can, can you speak to the difference between the CEO and the COO? I mean, you've had a, a pretty interesting lens that not a lot of people do. Often they'll go from the COO up to the CEO role, but um, not as often that they'll, they'll be in both roles at all. Yeah. Um, I've thought about this a lot. Uh, you know, the CEO, the buck stops there, right? I mean, it's it's the first line of the first person on the on the line of defense. Um, the COO, you know, can actually get a lot of things done uh, behind the scenes and and work sort of legislatively and work with a CEO. Um, I, you know, I think, and they did they have different stresses, right? I think the CEO role has a stress in that. No matter what happens under you, you you're you're responsible for it, right? And then the COO uh, stress might be, well, you know, I don't have the last say, uh, and if we don't agree, you know, I don't not get my way, but you know, there's a hierarchy where you don't have the last say, and that really shouldn't matter at the end of the day. Again, if you're both, you know, trying to figure out what's best for the company, to me, it's just a title um, and a reporting structure. Um, so I. I so I don't see a lot of, you know, I think again, COO more tactical and strategic, whereas the CEO more strategic and visionary and, um, and, and both complement each other. I mean, I, you know, in my case right now, I feel like we both have similar strengths and yet still enough of a difference on what should be next and what is the strategy and, and how to execute on that is different enough that we can uh, learn from each other. You mentioned some personality profiles earlier. Are personality profiles something that you um, use in the business, and do you use them in the interview process, post interview? Um, you know, where do you use them, and where? I know you're probably not going. Your listeners are probably not going to hear this. No, I don't. I, I don't use them. I mean, I think they're interesting, uh, but I try to assess people based on on the things that we've been talking about um, and the things that are in the book, which is sort of, you know, the physical, the emotional, uh, asking them questions that, you know, like starting an interview uh, for a job and just saying, you know, tell me your, tell me your journey, tell me your life's journey from beginning to middle to where you're headed. And often I'll hear a lot of things in that and get a lot of signals and clues. Um, and then I have some other, you know, questions that I won't let people know about, but, you know, it gives me insight into kind of what makes them tick, you know, going, going back to that driver, I do try to figure out what their drivers are. Um, and then, and then build a team based on that. Again, those personality, inter personality, um, 
surveys and things, they're, they're, they're helpful. Um, they kind of can, can give you different angles of a picture, but I think that we, we don't spend enough time truly understanding each other on a very visceral, basic level. And, you know, we, we, we tend to use those. And again, nothing against those, those personality, um, surveys, but we tend to use them as a crutch. And again, sort of as an inauthentic way of looking at people. Um, they are not a green or a red. They are a person. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, and that, that's harder to do and it takes a lot longer to, and it's not easy. I mean, you know, I'd, I'd rather deal with AI than people for sure, because it's a lot simpler. But, you know, if you can, if you can manage through it, the, the success and the, you know, is exhilarating where we line up fairly similarly with that as well, by the way, that um, I, I believe that often personality profiles are massively misused in the interview process and they, people will rely on them without learning enough about the candidate from doing proper interviews. So I think that's one. Secondly, I, I don't think that you should take a personality profile and that's how you build your company. What I like is doing almost one personality. Let's say I'm talking about the leadership team. I will get the whole leadership team to do a personality profile this year. And maybe we use Colby and we'll use that as a starting point to talk about each other and learn how to get together. And it's kind of like a, it's a prompt. It's a spark for the fire to have some discussion. Like, right. like the cards that you find sometimes on dinner tables, the communication starters, that's not the whole dinner, but it kind of gets some fun conversation going, you know, past what do you do for work, which none of us give a shit about. And then the second thing I do is next year, I'll do a different personality profile. So next year we'll do disc and then we'll do the colors and then we'll do PSI. So every year we'll do a different profile on each other to learn more about each other, but not as the be all and the end all. Right. I, I absolutely agree with you. That is, that is the more responsible way to do it. Mm -hmm. Using that as end all be all is just, it's, it's not helpful and it, it, it diminishes their, their importance. My um, my executive assistant and I talked about uh, one of the personality profiles called love languages. And we said, you know, you can take love language into the workforce that, you know, physical touch. So I'm not going to walk up and start like having the same physical touch with one of my employees that I might have with my wife. But the physical touch might, might just mean like a pat on the back or a, or a high five or, you know, words of affirmation. I'm not going to use the same words of affirmation as I use my, with my spouse and employee, but saying, hey, thank you, or I appreciate you, or you did a great job with this can go a mile, right? But again, it's not the entire, just because I know there are two love languages, that doesn't mean I know everything about them, right? Just happen to know little bits. Um, and, and you have to use all of that, right? I mean, all the things we're talking about is part of your toolkit. And and what I what I, th I think people miss is, you know, just again, picking whatever that is as, well, I'm going to be this kind of manager and use this kind of technique. You become one dimensional and, 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 and you don't, that's why I say, if you have that toolkit, that deep, toolkit you have to then feel what's happening in front of you you know like you may walk past five people in your office within 10 feet and each one of them needs something different from you and you've got to be able to adjust to that again that's where conducting comes in or horse horse training comes in like you can't just say i need you to do this now especially if you do that to a horse they could just bite you and kick you and you could be dead so you know we as humans don't uh, do that too much, but, uh, you know, the instinct is there for sure. I, I met a woman years ago who did some, uh, equine therapy, like horse therapy, and, and it's not therapy for the horses. It's taking people out to work with horses and the horses teach. Do you ever do that with any of your teams? Do you ever take your, your employees out and leadership teams out and have them work with horses and talk to them? We, we, we are talking about that. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And, and, and it is, uh, 
yeah, it's a, it's, it's powerful. It's powerful. I mean, these beasts are, you know, they're huge and they're, they can be very daunting, just like people can <laughs> if you allow them. So, yeah, she was doing it with, um, with kids, troubled, troubled youth and, and kids. And to see the connection between these kids and you could see that it was unbelievable. It was like a super, super powerful connection. And, 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 but again, I'd say that, you know, we have that as humans, we just tend to ignore sort it, sort of put it in a box or don't, we don't, we don't tap into that piece of us, but we have it. You know, there's a, there's a Harvard professor who, who, who did a study about, and she said that, you know, once, when you meet someone immediately, you assess them, like you've assessed them within two seconds, you know, do you trust them? Do you like them? And and there are all these things going on in the background that we don't tap into, but we can. And that's what horses do. Like horses just size you up. And, and, and the way horses, you know, the reason I think horses are used for those therapies is because they can get to a deep, deeper level of, of understanding and emotion right away that, that, that those kids, uh, you know, are starving for, you know, yeah, that they, they can't really articulate, but they can feel things. And and it, and it, but we can do that as people. We can be the same kind of people if we allow ourselves to do that. And again, I know that sounds, you know, woo woo and you know, soft, you know, touchy feely. But but I, I really do see, like you said earlier, you know, just saying hi and being genuinely concerned about people's day is all it takes sometimes to to, to start to start down that journey. Um, so it's not like you have to, you know, commit to a full relationship, you know, with everybody, but. Uh, but again, it takes time. It's it's also okay being a little bit woo in business because it's 2023. It's not 1985, right? So we're we're allowed to kind of tap into some of this stuff now. It's becoming more bright, <laughs> slowly but surely. <laughs> yeah. Well, what what about your skill development as a leader? Where have you had to work on your skills over the years, and what are you working on today? You know, one of the things that has, as I mentioned earlier, that I that I constantly try to work on is not jumping in and. And, and providing that bandwidth to my team members when I feel like they need it. I mean, even just recently, you know, people feel like I'm micromanaging or, or making them feel that they don't, they're not qualified to do it. So I've got to do it. And I said, just the opposite. I see how stressed you are. And I, I figured I'd pick up this piece of your, your job. And I think, you know, not communicating that and, and, and continuing to be aware of that, um, that, you know, my interest is really to help them not to micromanage them or not to, you know, um, say that you're not doing, you're not qualified to do your job. So um, trying not to be that, but that's a driver of mine, you know, and that's, you know, I was saying earlier, my driver has been sort of being that savior, you know, having that savior complex and really, really helping people who need the help, you know, that underdog or, and that's how I got into, you know, helping organizations that were flatlined. You know, I wanted to go in as soon as I hear that they're not doing well, I want to just put my cape on and jump in and help, you know, and sometimes that's not the right thing to do when it comes to your team. You know, sometimes they need to figure things out and, 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 and being there and doing everything for them is not necessarily the best solution. So I'm still working on that <laughs> from day one of being a CEO to, you know, all these years later, still working on it. Now I've got visions of you wearing like a Superman cape, riding a horse and waving your baton. It's getting there you go. <laughs> That's a different kind of novel. <laughs> yeah. right, so let's go back to the 22 year old Paul and, and you need some advice and you turn to your current day self. What advice would you give yourself back then that you know to be true today? Don't try to con convince others of how awesome you are. Just, you know, add value, especially, you know, if they're going to hire you or if they're talking to you, they already think you're awesome, right? You've already passed that test. So really, Figure out how you can add true value to people and, and start there. 
And, you know, I'd also say, don't lose the, don't lose the Disney magic. You know, I, I grew up on Warner brothers cartoons where the coyote was blown up. And then the next scene he's back on his bike or whatever. And, you know, I haven't forgotten that. And I, if you don't continue to believe in something that the glass is overflowing or that there's that, there's that possibility that the coyote will survive one more time, that positivity, that sort of Disney magic thing has really carried me through life. And don't, a lot of people let other people uh, blow that flame out and, or, or you get beaten down so much that, you know, uh, you lose it. And I say, keep it, do everything you can to protect it. I love that. Paul Janzdunek, is that right? Awesome. Thank you very much for sharing with us today on the Second Command podcast. Really appreciate your time, Paul. My pleasure. That was great. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.